last week's thoughts relating to God's grace and His sovereignty and our joy. Why do we worship? Think about that for a minute. Why do we worship? Why do you worship? Is it obligatory? Is it an obligation that you feel compelled to do? And then, if so, what is your worship? What does worship mean? What is comprised in worship? Worship is, by definition, to ascribe worth. That's how the word came to be, worth-ship, to ascribe worth to something. That's why idolatry is such a natural means of our life. It's such a natural order of things in that we love things and we ascribe worth to things and then we have an affection for those things and we talk about those things and we build up those things and we share those things and that's worship. But according to the scripture, God alone is worthy of worship and worthy of all worship and only he is worthy of worship. So when we worship other things, we are taking away that which belongs to God and we're placing it on other things. And beloved, there's no way that it will ever cease. We will always worship our children. We will worship our spouses. We will worship the good times. We will worship our memories. And it's not like we're bowing down to them, but ultimately they will come to a place where they will be precious to us to such a degree that when... They may not be in the same place tomorrow, our joy wanes. It happens. It's it's the natural reality of the consequence of the fall and the life in which we live and the world in which we live. And, And we could do our due diligence. We could walk and learn and we could create structure and foundations of behavior and thinking. And we could we could really mold ourselves into a pie of piety that would be tasteless and bland and selfish. Because then that very piety would become our new idol. The very doctrines that we would so passionately and boldly devour others over, even though they may be real and true, could very much also be an idol. When we're not ascribing worth to the one to whom they point. The New Testament was written to teach us this. The letters that Paul wrote to the elder Timothy, to the elder Titus. The pastoral epistles where Paul wrote to the pastors of the churches that they may know what is good and orderly and how to teach the church. And then as he addressed these men, he knew that the church would hear these letters because he commanded it of the elders to read them publicly to the church. There was no secret conversations in the instruction to the church. And then, as the audience would hear the instruction to these men, then Paul would say, okay, and you younger women and younger men and older women and older men and children, pay attention because now I'm going to tell you a few things. So we have to learn to read the context and read and hear the reality of what the Bible is teaching as it was intended to be understood by the very person, Timothy, who received the letter. And then when we know it that way, and when we see this instruction, it'll inform the, whole, the entirety of how we're supposed to read the New Testament in, in, to begin with. It is, a, it is a corrective, encouraging, rebuking, 
collection of letters and historical record about worshiping God as a people. By His grace, for His namesake, for His revealed self, for His glory. So that's why we're here. We are compelled because God is worthy. We are compelled because the gospel is the power of God for us. Simply, grace upon grace. And so we hear these letters, we read these letters, and it's difficult because we make application. Well, beloved, at the minimum, the greatest application we can have in any instruction is to worship the Lord, is to thank Him. Is to ascribe worth to Him. Is to establish a place before Him. To know that it is not we who have become what He needs us to be. But it is He who has satisfied righteousness for us. And it is His righteousness that is credited to us. So therefore in that reality, in that truth, in that good report, in that historical amazing story... The body of Christ gets to stand righteous and worship God without fear. Without falsehood, without fakeness, without depression, anger, and anxiety. But yet, it is always present. It is always present. Listen to chapter 1, 1 Timothy, verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acknowledgement. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the most premier and wicked foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are going to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We'll never get out of this. I'm telling you, we're never going to get out of this stuff. The letters are hard sometimes to make application. Until we learn to hear them rightly. Slow down and listen. Let our brains stop this morning trying to 
pick it apart and, and just, oh, what's he mean there? And how's that line with justification? What's this? That's what we do. That's what some of us do. Some of you don't. Like, what are you talking about? It's okay. Some of us do that. I do that. Slow down and just hear. Quit trying to be the professional chef who is dipping his fingers in the sauce and, and smelling and snuffing and checking the color and just eat it and enjoy the taste, you see. Just smell it and enjoy the experience of hearing the Word of God. We don't hear it enough. We don't hear it enough. We don't listen enough. And because of that, we don't understand it enough. I remember in seminary and postgraduate studies and everything, all the different studies that we do through the years. And I remember having to write papers and outlines on every letter in the New Testament. An exegetical outline, every letter in the New Testament. And so I started with, you know, 3 John and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> you know, get the little ones out of the way and then you end up with Romans and Hebrews and and you're like, I don't know how to outline this. So you find research and you find resources and you go, yeah, that's pretty good. Cite it. And you think, you say, where'd they come up with that? How'd they see that? Where'd that point come from? You know, how does a man get nine points out of four words? That's a, that guy's a genius. He must have a red phone to Jesus. Hey, oh, just give me your nine points. That's all I'm going to give you today. Write them down. And he writes them down. <laughs> Boy, I'm going to really blow the church away this morning. And then y'all do what we do. Where did he get that? <laughs> he must be really smart. There's no sense in me listening to the Bible or reading the Bible or studying that. <laughs> I'll never get that. It's not the point. It's not how we learn to preach. It's not how we prepare sermons. It's not what we need up here with us. We need this. We need to... Listen more. And when we listen more, God teaches us more. And the more God teaches us, the more we know Him and the more intimately involved we are with the Spirit of God and the more the truth will satisfy our souls in the midst of mortal hell. And some of you may be thinking, especially you children, like, well, I don't really know what that means. That means that life sometimes is horrible. And we say, it's like hell. But it's not. The worst thing that we could ever experience on this earth will never be the righteous wrath of God. Because we'll never experience that, beloved. And at the darkest of hours, the greatest of opportunities for us is to worship our Father who has promised us we'd never be condemned by Him. So that Paul, as he suffered and in great ways, greater than I believe any man ever has suffered other than the Christ, he was able to say, thank you, Father. I mean, you look, Paul confesses here. He does so also in Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians 4. You know, we're going to try to get there last week, but we didn't get there. We're going to be in Philippians 4 for the predominant latter half of the sermon this morning. Because it's a good, it's a good carriage text for this that keeps the tone correct. It's not a proof text. It's, a, it's one that goes alongside of it with a little more instruction. But Paul is... Suffering, Timothy is suffering, the elders are suffering, the church is suffering. You know why? Because that's a promise. It is part of the promises of God. 
It is part of the consequence of the natural consequence of the spiritual consequence of this world because we are fallen and we are sinful and the world is winding down preparing for destruction and preparing for renewal because of the reconciliation that is ours in Christ Jesus. So we can see Paul and Peter. I'm going to read some of Peter's first epistle too where this insanity of rejoicing and fearlessness and boldness, which is not what we think it is in America. Being bold is not what we think it is. Being bold is, is oftentimes being silent. I have the strength to hurt people, but we withhold that, right? We have the strength to hurt people with our mouths, but we withhold those words. Because we're wise and bold. And we speak the truth in love as Christ has revealed it. Not as we have disseminated it and decided to systematize it. And so Paul, his response as we talked about last week, is he is thankful. He thanks God. Paul is not the heady superior authority that we have in our day. Paul, his humility, I could not touch it. I could touch any humility. I am not humble. I withdraw to prevent disaster. I want you to hear that, beloved. When you hear me make jokes about murderous hearts, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. So, Paul is not haughty. He's humble. I thank him. Paul is not living in his own strength, his own wisdom, his own understanding, his own academics, his own knowledge. He's not living in his own discipline. He's living by the strength of Christ. He has given me strength. He said that also, Philippians 4, didn't he? I endure all things by the one who is my strength, Christ Jesus. I endure all things. I stand in the midst of all things. Beloved, we give up because that's what we can do. We quit because that's what's easy and inevitable. Everybody has a point where they can take no more. And just because someone else is stronger for longer doesn't make them strong. We're weak. And I'll tell you what, we're really, really weak in every aspect of our lives. And a lot of times we've been taught. See, I was taught through culture. I was taught through mentors. I was taught through positive thinking that you just keep your chin up and you just keep walking and you look forward to a better day. Do it. Fake it till you make it. You ever heard that, salesman? You know? That works till you go to the suit store and you can't afford the nice suit. You can... Wax your car, but there's no paint on it. What's the purpose? You know. You can smile, but you have no joy. 
You can show up, but you're really not here. You can be married, but you're really not intimate. And it could go on and on and on. There's something that's true for all of us. Is that no matter where we are, no matter how strong we may appear, no matter how bold in our own minds we have told ourselves we are and how confident we feel, we're anxious. We're anxious and fearful and struggling and bitter. Don't believe me? Are you lying to yourself? Yeah, we do that. Well, no, I'm good. People ask me this week, are you okay? I'm great. I'm not great. I'm not great. There is more in my mind and on my shoulders this day that are outside of my control than I could ever, ever shake a stick at. There are issues that I could not foresee happening to my family in a million years. There are some of you who are experiencing things that (laughs) I never saw myself here. And we go, why is this happening? Why are we fearful? Why can't I have faith? Then what's really crazy is that this anxiety, this pressure, this buildup that comes on us, we we get the platitudes of the Christian culture. We just got to trust God. God bless. How does that help you? Is it true? Yes. But is it power? See, we live in a fast food society. Even when you go to a five-star restaurant, and listen, folks, I love good food. I love food that I have to close my eyes to eat because I just want to experience the taste. I'm a poet. I could write poetry about the taste of certain foods. I'm not kidding. People think, well, that's a really nice poem about his wife. No, that's about a steak I ate. (laughs) You know? I mean, I enjoy it. But I don't want to wait two hours for it. You see? Chip, chop, chip. Welcome to our... Don't sit in here and give me all this other stuff to eat for an hour and a half and then come out and say, what do you want for your main course? Take my order now. I don't care about your specials, your soup, or your bow tie. Give me my food. I mean, you know, because sitting there makes me anxious. Why? Because that's the type of person that I am. I have to watch, count. How many people left? Where's that guy that was sitting over there? Why is his bag still on the floor? I bet they're thinking that I'm doing something. They're probably spitting in my food. You think I'm joking. I get a feeling like that something. I'll just stare at stuff. I can't tell. I'm crazy, y'all. Anxious. Anxiety. Anxiety has been so bad for me over the last two years to a degree that I've never experienced that it's shut me down mentally emotionally, physically, caused me to have issues in my GI to where I developed an infection, to where I developed a a lifelong now disease that if I'm not careful, could kill me in an hour. Talk about no stress. (laughs) Well, the reason you're having these problems, sir, is that you're too stressed. And if you don't stop being stressed, you're going to die. Thanks. You know? This is helping me. I appreciate that. Just trust God. Just God bless. 
That doesn't help. So what's the answer? What's the answer? God has prescribed it. Paul's like, I thank God who's given me strength. I was a blasphemer. I was an unbeliever. And I thought I was a believer. I thought I knew, but I knew a lot of stuff. But I did not know Him. But Christ knew Paul. God knew Paul when Paul didn't know him. And God called Paul out of darkness and gave him sight. And God saved Paul, the worst of sinners, in order to show his patience with his people. The worst, wicked, vile blasphemer that you know in life, the worst false teacher that you've ever come across, may actually be the one that God is going to bring to faith and blow your mind. And the most bold, stern, pious, I'll never, may fall away tomorrow. It's not about us who labor. It's about Him who is faithful and gives mercy. Christ came to save sinners. Not every sinner, not all sinners, but all that He saves are all sinners. We are all sinners. We are all by nature objects of wrath. We are all enemies of God. And then God makes His love known to us by the Spirit, through the hearing of the words of Christ, who says, I am the only way, I am the only ultimate and all truth, and I am the life. And no one can come to God, the Father. No one can come to righteousness. No one can come to glory. No one can know the truth. No one can live well enough. No one can be theologically sound enough. No one ever, ever can be alive if they don't come through me. And the gate through which Christ opened to righteousness and to life is His body and His blood. And it tore down the walls of separation. And we are at one with God the Father in righteousness. Not of our own, but in alien righteousness. And the perfection and the obedience and the righteousness and the glory of Christ has been credited to our account. And we're anxious. (laughs) We're anxious. And this isn't the first season of my life where I've had utter anxiety. It's sort of like the norm. Wake up, brush your teeth, drink your coffee, get anxious. Just, it's like a little shot. And the way I think is probably different than the way you think. But the way I feel is probably different than the way you feel. So I can't begin to know what you're feeling or thinking, but I can promise you the outcome is the same. It produces fear, it produces bitterness, it produces anger, it produces self-righteousness. It produces, uh, for some of us, a a, a manic expression like, oh, everything's great, everything's great, because we fake it. And for others, it produces a depressive action where we just hide and surrender to the thoughts and to the despair. And for some of us, we become generals in an army of our own making. And we're going to charge through the gates of hell with a water pistol and put the fire out. I mean, water pistols are my day. You know, you dipped them in a bucket and then went bloop, 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 and you had like six shots. That'd be a good toy to bring, David. (laughs) Summertime. 
There we go. All you parents are going, you're going to die, Pastor. Yeah, this is the last sermon you'll ever preach. But now the super soakers, you know, $700, you've got to get a loan. That's not about water pistol. And we're going to charge through hell. We're going to put down the fires of the world. We're going to change the life of everyone. We're going to make a difference. And now it's over. I'm not going to make a difference at all. Some of us are like that. Some of us are just, we pretend like nothing's wrong. And then we put things out of our minds. We don't want to worry about it. We don't think about it. You know what? I'm good. I want to think about that. I'm not going to think about that. That's how some people act. I'm like, well, I wish I could do that. I've learned to schedule my thinking. I really do. I schedule it. I start a timer. Apple Watch, best thing I ever owned because it has a timer that vibrates. I love it. I use it all day long. Oh, I've got to go do this. I'm going to do it for 30 minutes. I'm going to do six minutes here. I'm only going to do this. It's great. Don't look at me that way. I have to schedule like that or I just get lost. What are you doing? I'm watering the grass and I ran out of water. The water tower's empty. Oh, and my grass is dead. <laughs> Got to have a hard stop on everything. Open-ended questions becomes verbose nonsense. Hard stop. But Christ came to save sinners. And he's going to save his people from their sin. He has saving them, has saved them, he is saving them, and he will save them. And the grace of God is established and expressed in God's work to redeem his people. That's what God's grace is. It's a merciful act of God that he decreed eternally. That means it didn't have a beginning. And in time, he established the execution of this grace by creating the world and everything in it and separating and dividing and showing that he is the life giver, he is the divider, he is the gospel bringer, he is the condemnation bringer. He is the one who is just in all righteousness and all wrath. He is life. And the point of life is that Christ would become like us and take on flesh just as we are without sin and live a life according to the righteousness of God, as the righteousness of God, that his death might be satisfactory unto wrath and justice. And that's why God saved Paul, not for Paul, for himself. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's why Paul ends this little phrase here, verse 17. That's why he ends it this way. To the king of ages. This is a doxology. It's just a praise. It's a worship. It's an expression of, of, of glorious knowledge and, and, and affirmation and intimacy. I mean, gentlemen, when we're out in public and we're at the gas station or we're out on a date with our spouse, you know, when we see a waitress come up and we don't, Thank her in a way that's inappropriate when she refills our glasses. Thank you. You're the most beautiful waitress I've ever seen. You're glorious. You're awesome. I just, you know, it's just amazing. You're more amazing than any woman I've ever known. And your wife's over the going. <laughs> and you're going to be washing dishes because she left you there. <laughs> Why? Because that praise is not for every woman. It's just for your wife. Husbands, wives, same thing. You don't go on. I mean, it's nonsense. Of course I wouldn't do that. And some of you are going, I'm going to try it now. Please film it. We'll get some hits on that on our whatever your TikTok or Tic Tac or whatever it is. Now. 
I said breath mint. Never mind. But Paul. Paul gives praise to God. He says, to the king of ages. You know what that means? To the ruler over all things. To the ruler over every age. To the one who created time and began it and sustains it. Colossians 1. Who Christ, by the word of power, upholds the cosmos. The infinite cosmos, which I have an incredibly fun time watching them measure. I'm overcome by it. I'm scared to death of outer space. I will never go out. I will never be shot off the atmosphere. Not happening. I'll just watch your videos when you get stuck out there. It's scary. But it's awesome at the same time. To the God, to the King of Ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God. What is he saying about this God? He's saying he's giving him something. He's ascribing something to him. This is worship. To this God be honor and glory forever and ever. Transliterated word, amen. Amen means it is so. It is so. So what do we do with anxiety? We look to that. See. So when we come together to worship, we're to look to that. We're to be reminded of that. No matter how practical the application is, no matter how sensitive we may have to deal, we have to turn off the cameras some Sundays and say, hey, we're not going to be preaching to anybody but who's here because this is sensitive. You know, we've, we've had to do that type of stuff. We've had to have real conversations about real things, and those who are in the body and local and with us are privy to that information. So even when we have those types of meetings and gatherings, we still can look beyond all of these little things once we deal with the dustpan and get it all up. We can look up and just go, wow, look at our God. Because God is still the God of the king and the, of the ages, the immortal, the invisible God of glory, to whom all praise and honor and glory is due and is his and will be his forever. He is still that God over the dust in our pan. When we're cleaning up our lives, when we're dealing with anxiety, when we're dealing with the stress of the then and now, when we're worried about whether or not we're a good enough parent or a good enough spouse or a good enough friend or a good enough brother or a good enough Christian, when we're thinking that we actually really are pretty good and we're doing everything pretty well and we're, we're going along, when we make judgments against people and then we realize, wow, we're, we're sinful, we're murderers at heart. You know, we're murderers at heart, right? I'm not the only one. And then we start feeling guilty, or then we start getting angry, or that somebody upsets us, or that we hear something about politics, or that we hear some nonsense from, you know, uh, the internet. And then we realize who we really are. We realize what we're really in. We still have a God over all of it. And it's not just here. It's not just here in this little introduction to Timothy. It's also shown in a lot of the letters in the New Testament. It's shown in the gospel narratives, the historical records of the teaching of Jesus to four different people groups, four different focuses of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and their gospel accounts, where we see Jesus teaching. He says, why are you worrying about what you're going to eat? See, our worrying about what we're going to eat is where we're going to eat. What are we going to buy? 
Do we have the money to buy roast? Nope, we're about to go bankrupt eating meat. We're going to eat rice, <laughs> you know. But I don't know anybody in my lifetime that's been so displaced as a people, as a group, that they're thinking, are we going to eat? We have no clothes except what we came out of the house with. And that was first century Christian living. Hallelujah, right? The mega churches of the first century were half-naked nomadic hungry people. Who were hated by everybody who was in the true faith of Judaism. And so... Jesus says, why are you worrying about what you're going to eat? <laughs> Look at the sparrows. You ever seen sparrows? You ever tried to count sparrows? As a little boy, I would remember that. I'd try to count those things. You can't count sparrows. You can count ducks. You can count geese. You can count dove. You can count things that fly in some sense of unity and fly. Sparrows are like crack addicts of the sky. <laughs> They're everywhere all the time. In and out, doing all sorts of things. Spazzing everywhere. There's millions and billions and trillions of them. Probably not. <laughs> but God establishes their food. And they eat every single day. And they get water every single day. And Jesus says, do you see the sparrows? That They're not worried about what they're going to eat. You see the flowers out there? They're not saying, oh gosh, am I going to come up with a pretty flower? Oh, what am I going to do with my leaves? No, they just come up. They're not worried about this stuff. They're not worried about what they're going to wear. So why then, he says, are you worried when your Father in heaven loves you? Because that's what we are. And it's not a rebuke. See, it's not Jesus going, stop worrying, dummy. It's Jesus equipping us with a prescription to help us in our worry. To help us in our anxiety. Because the greatest point of depression that I ever experienced was in 2005. My family that are here know what I'm talking about. And it was a catalyst that spiraled me into a psychotic existence of not knowing where I was in the world. Nor did I care. Because what I was trying to do is get rid of the feelings and overcome the anxiety and fear and sadness, and overcome the stress of not being certain by removing everything in my life that was causing me any kind of possible anxiety. And guess what I found? The only thing left was me. And I was the only thing left there, and then I was the main reason I was so anxious. And so now what do I do? And as someone who is and obsessive about everything to a fault. So I used to count steps and touch my fingers and symmetrical tactile experiences. And if I'm not careful, that's good. That feels good. Not on this hand, not on this hand, but both. That's a disease, guys. Now what am I going to do? So I opened up my Bible after I trashed my study. I threw my CRT monitor on the ground and it made a pop. You know what a CRT monitor is? Yeah, that's back in the days where you had to call a buddy to help you get your monitor off your desk. Hey, Trey, can you come help me move the monitor? Oh, sure. Let me put my brace on. 
like, like 50 jillion volts still stored in that thing. So, I cleared my desk. I threw everything. I just went. I had a, like, a fit of rage. And I pick up my Bible. And I'm going to throw it. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is an expensive Bible. OCD. I'm going to tear this one's nice. I'm going to tear this one up. And I open it up. And I say, God, I haven't read anything. I, did, I, don't, I mean, I haven't, I don't know what have I not read in a while. I haven't read Hebrews in a sometime. So I open Hebrews 1. And you know what I saw there? I saw not me. That's it. And I'll tell you right now, beloved, I'm not in that picture because it's not about me and it's not about you. And that's where the most of our anxiety comes from is that we're so self-interested, self-concerned, concerned about others and how we feel about it or how we feel for them. And we don't want them to suffer. See, a long time I thought I was going to be a surgeon. I wanted to go into medical school. Chemistry changed that, so I went into music school. <laughs> yeah. Medicine, music, starts with M. Yeah. Funny is I was looking for a Bachelor of Music and the abbreviation is a BM. No kidding. But for those of you old enough to get that. <laughs> and then, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be a doctor because I can't do this work. I don't want to do this work. That's really what it was all about. And then now more recently in the last few years, I've realized I can't stand to see people hurt. I can't stand to see people in pain. I don't want, I want to punch the nurses when they give my kids shots. You made them cry. What made my child cry? He's going to die if I don't give him a shot. Well, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> you know, that's not how I am. But I mean, that's what you think. I don't want, I don't want it. Combing hair, look at infant pictures and young little toddler pictures of Ruby. And I was responsible for getting her ready in the mornings and getting everybody to school. And Ruby looked like a firecracker had gone off in her head every day because I was combing her hair and brushing her hair, and, and she's a non-responsive pain receiver. And I looked at her one day, and she's got these tears rolling in her little face. I said, honey, what's wrong? You hurt me. Never combed her hair again. So she looked like, I don't know, a homeless rat. Beautiful homeless rat with her hair is what I'm saying. It's just a knot. Beautiful. And the teachers at the school said, Mr. Tippins, do you have a brush? Seriously, they sent a letter home. I had to take a brush. I said, you can do her hair. I'm not doing her hair. I can't stand to see people hurt. And you know what happens when I see pain? I'm mad. Why am I mad? I don't know. But it's how it makes me feel. You see? What do you think Paul was going through? What do you think Timothy was going through? What do you think all these people, they're going through worse stuff than that. I'm upset because my daughter's hair is tangled. I'm frustrated because gas is high. Woo! Did y'all walk here? Some of you did by choice, but you know what I mean. So what's the prescription? We look, we look. We look at the glory of God. We look at the glory of Christ. That's why we come to worship, so that we may be reminded of this revelation. We may be reminded of who God is, and we may learn the discipline. Do you know, I had this conversation with a brother of mine in Virginia, the discipline of forgiveness. There's an example here. You might think, where's this sermon going? I promise you, it's, it's working just fine. It's working just fine. I don't want you to tell as many stories, but it's important. And we're talking, and he says, you know, I, there's people that haven't come back to church since COVID. He's a pastor. And he says, and I don't really want to call them because <laughs> I don't want them to come back because I haven't forgiven them for the mess they made. 
And I'm scared if I call them, they will come back and make more messes. And they, they made a mess. It was bad. Tried to get him fired. Tried to ruin his marriage. I mean, you know, there's a lot of nasty stuff that goes on. Vindictive people are hard. But the conversation, the question was this. How do I really know I've forgiven? Because it's just like I, and just like some of you, you're trying to get rid of the emotions, get rid of the thoughts, get rid of the feelings, and you think when that is all settled, then you've settled the issue. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says to be thankful in the midst of these things. The Bible says to pay attention to these warning lights in your life, to know that our flesh is still active and fighting against the spirit that was, is within us, but that Christ is greater, that the Lord is greater than our hearts, First John. And when our hearts condemn us, he's greater than our hearts. We have not been, as Paul tells the Thessalonians, he reminds them, we have not been destined unto wrath, but unto life through Jesus Christ. And so we see all of these things and we've got to say, well, what is the prescription? The prescription is to effectively trust God in what he has told us will work. Do not forsake the assembly. Why? Because together, we actually have everything we need to satisfy each one of our needs. We do. Culturally, we're accustomed to that share being a protective bubble. And then when we're done, we bubble ourselves right on out. And it's okay. Don't feel guilty for that. That's just who some people are. Some people don't tell that they have any needs and then they're upset that nobody helps them. Some people don't have any needs, but they seem like they have all needs, <laughs> you see? And we're all in this together. So that's the first step, because this is the launching pad to ministry. This gathering each week is the doorway to us getting what we need in our lives every day. And if we're not here, we will not receive it. Why? Because God hasn't promised that. When we're not intimate in worship, how are we ever going to be intimate in ministry? And so we come to this idea of discipline. Like forgiveness, it's a discipline. There's a lot of people who have done a lot of bad things. There are people, there was some people in a church before who threatened to kill my children. Stuck a note on my office door. It said, I know where your kids are in the afternoons. Watch out. So what I do? Well, I had 20 FBI agents in my church, so I just took it to them. They're like, oh, yeah, we'll find out. So how do you forgive that? You forget about it. <laughs> how do you forgive it? It's a discipline. It's a discipline. We pray for people who hurt us. We truly ask God, instead of laboring so much, God, take away this bitterness, take away this stuff, take away... What are we doing when we're doing that? What are we doing when we're praying that way? It's not a bad request, but we labor focusing on our sin and on our flesh and asking God to take our mind off our flesh while we're constantly putting our mind on our flesh. It's not the prescription and the discipline that's shown, that's shown in the Bible. Go to Philippians 4. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. So what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And let's take that command, 
Let's take that command because that's what it is. It's a command. Paul is telling, so the Lord is telling through Paul, commanding his people to rejoice. When? Always. But is it said to rejoice about all things? No. It's said to rejoice in the Lord always. And in all circumstances. But we don't say, thank you God that I lost my leg. But yeah, some people will tell you, you need to thank God for that. Well, I don't want to thank God for the loss of my leg. Well, thank you, God, that I'm going blind. Praying for a brother who's losing his eyesight. And I'm certain that somebody along the way, just, just thank God for it. Just thank God for it. Now, it's not a bad thing to say, but how do you really thank somebody for something you're not thankful for? It's just silly. I'm not thankful. I'm not thankful for the death and destruction in my life. I'm thankful for the Lord in the midst of it. I'm thankful for the circumstances being in His sovereign hand. I'm thankful that every dumb thing I've ever done that has caused me pain, God is greater than that. God is greater than my stupidity. And He's greater than yours. And He will work it all out for our good. So look at what Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here we get a deeper picture of how Paul can write to Timothy that he just thanks God for being his strength. And how he can throw a doxology in the midst of all things. How he can go on to these Philippians and, and say, I rejoice in the Lord. I did this. I did that. I thank God always in my remembrance of you. And everywhere you look, he's thanking God for everything that he's in and everything that he has and everything that he doesn't have. Because his perspective and the discipline of looking at the promises of God in the Bible change how we look at the circumstances we're in. And some people say, well, this isn't gospel preaching. Then don't listen. It is gospel preaching. But because of God's redemptive work in Christ Jesus, we have the precious promise to approach our Father. We have the precious promise and the command to petition Him for our needs. We have the precious promise of His power in our lives to give us joy in the midst of great trial. So let's unpack this a little bit. Verse 8 also. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, has excellence, worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, you see those things? Practice these things. So we're to think on these things that we've learned and practice these things that we've been taught. And you know what that does? It wipes away all the platitudes of a nonchalant Christian culture that just says God is good all the time and all the time. God is good, which means nothing to almost everyone who says it. 
God is good in the birth of a new child, and God is good in the bad report from the doctor, and God is good when we die, and God is good when we live. So we rejoice. We rejoice in the gospel of free and sovereign grace. That's the first part of this discipline of overcoming the despair of anxiety. It's not going to overcome anxiety in the sense that it won't be there. But just like with forgiveness as a discipline, I didn't finish that example. You think you've forgiven someone until they knock on your door. Somebody gets in your face, somebody says something ugly, somebody spreads rumors and lies or whatever, and then they knock on your door. And you're, you're talking all spiritual and good, and you know, I just, I forgive them, I forgive them. And then they knock on the door and you're going, oh, see? Oh, and then you got this weird thing, you're like, why is he here? Oh, I don't forgive him. <laughs> uh, hey, because now you're ashamed. Like, oh, gosh, you hope the children don't repeat what they heard you say about them. I hate that guy. You know? Who? Oh, shh, he's outside. That's what we do. That's what culture does. And then the world would say, well, you know, you're just this sinful guy that has not forgiven. You got that right. But in that moment, forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness is possible by greeting sincerely and saying, what can I do for you? And in my circumstance, a lot of times that comes back where people who have taken and taken and taken and, and stolen and stolen and stolen, literally stolen, and then they come back wanting more for free. <laughs> you know, you get those breathing exercises, you do a martial arts to just sort of find your... The right use of your diaphragm before you pass out. That's what it's really for. And you sort of breathe and you say, okay, God, I have to serve this person. I love them in you. And that's forgiveness in that moment. Even though the feelings are still gnawing at you or still frustrating you or still you have this, why do I want to do this and don't want to do this and don't want to do this and then I do this. Why do we have this Romans 6 and 7 going all the time? Oh, God, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Do I even believe enough? No, we don't believe enough. Rejoice in the Lord always, in the gospel always, in the sufficiency of His sovereignty always. We find our joy. Peter, Peter makes that really amazingly clear in his letter to the, to, 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 the, to the Jews. What does he say? He says that, you are suffering, and, and, and blessed be the God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. See, this is the rejoicing in the Lord part. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, that is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. See, that's where our rejoicing is in the gospel. Not in the circumstances. Not in the outcome. It's easy to rejoice. Like I got good news last night on some things that have just been weighing on me so hard that I could die. And I got some resolution on that. And I woke up this morning feeling like I had just turned 20. Oh, look at this sinner. That's a real fun opportunity to have an exercise right before you come to preach to God's people. That you're 
joy was more dependent upon the circumstances being reconciled rather than me. But that's not what God says to us, is it? Our Father says to us, Stand up. Stand up. Put this robe on. Here's my name. Put this ring on. Put on these sandals and come in here and feast upon the bread of life, which is yours and my son. Shh. You're at rest. Holy moly. Is it even good to say those two words together? <laughs> you know? What is happening? This is the joy of Christ. We're being guarded, so we rejoice in this. Though, 1 Peter 1, 6, Now, for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved. Isn't that opposite of joy? Grieved? What's wrong, Peter? Get up on the wrong side of the bed? Hit your head? Did you drink too much wine the night before? Peter, what is wrong with you? Rejoice! You're grieved. Rejoice! You're grieved. That's the life we live in. That's the life we live. That's why it's important for us to come here and talk about these things in the context of the letter that we're in so that we are instructed on how we ought to see the day that we've been given, which is the Lord's. Why grieve in the first place? By what? By various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes when burned, that the tested genuineness of your faith, and see, here's the cool thing, your faith is not your faithfulness. Your faith is a gift of God that looks at His faithfulness. And the faithfulness of God that He gives you the ability to look at may be found to result, here we go, into the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when you see Him face to face. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you still do not now see Him, you believe in Him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. That means you might not have a smile. You may not feel good. You may not kick up your, your jump like I had a V8 or I bought a Toyota or whatever the TV's shown us through the years. We may not high-five, dap, diggity-dog or whatever, moonwalk or do backflips. We may fall on the floor and weep and cry in our own sweat and tears. Inexpressible. But in the midst of that joy that is inexpressible, we rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So we look to, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we look to that which is eternal, not to that which is temporal. We look to that which is not going to pass away, not to that which is passing away now. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, that we do not love the world or the things of the world because the things of the world are garbage already and they're rotting. But we look to that which is eternal. We rejoice because Christ is Lord of everybody. Unbelievers, atheists, Satanists, everybody. At all times, forever, since let there be light. And beyond. But he's not the savior of everybody. And those who are being saved, 
<laughs> it's not because they did the right thing, had the right attitude, or was, were done with the anxiety in their lives. You want to really feel anxiety? Work out your own salvation in your own power. The Lord is at hand. Be reasonable with everyone. Let there never be a person in this world who says to another, that person's not reasonable. Do not be anxious about anything. Now see, that's a command too. The command to rejoice, the command not to be anxious. And beloved, that command makes me anxious. It makes me anxious. I'm anxious about the command not to be anxious and to rejoice. And I could easily just segue into an incredible 30-minute comedy routine and just move right along and we could play a song and throw balloons. We got some. And, and, and we could just have a good time and leave and go, what did we just talk about? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But we feel better, right? We laughed. We sang. We played with balloons. It was a party. But that's not the prescription. Do not be anxious about anything because the Lord is at hand. See, it goes back to the sufficiency and the sovereignty of God. And the sufficiency of the Word of God is the prescriptive order of our lives so that we may have joy. Let's stop looking to get rid of all the fear and the sadness and the brokenness and the anxiety. Let's look to look to that which is opposite of those things, which is the beauty of our Savior. And then let's do it together. Let's, let's tell one another. But here is what the Scripture teaches us. In everything, in everything that causes us strife and fear and pain, in everything that bothers us, in everything that weighs us down, in everything that gives us grief and frustration and anger, everything. What does he say? By prayer, talking to our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and supplication with earnest pleading. That's what that means. We request, we ask, we say, oh, Father, please. What? What should we ask? Well, first he says, how? With thanksgiving. Be thankful to God for who He is. Worship. That's what we started our service this morning. We worship God by ascribing our gratefulness to Him and His about His gratefulness. Two different uses of the term. About His greatness. Sorry. Our gratefulness about His greatness. So we let our requests be known to God. In verse 7, look at the result of these things. Look at the result of these things, of, of putting our thoughts to prayers. I think about it. I talk to myself. I hear my own voice. I think and think and think and talk and talk and talk and think and think. And think. You do the same thing. Instead of that, internally, do it externally. Let those mind games be requests to God. Praying is the hardest discipline that the believer can do when it's truly supplication. It's easy to remember the rote prayers of our childhood. It's easy to remember the same old phrases and think that it's just like, ding, 
check the lo- uh, check the click the bell or ring a bell, check the box, and we're just moving right along. It's easy to look at these things in such a way that that, that we just pray out of practice and principle rather than pleading with our Father who is in heaven, who is readily there to answer our prayers. We thank Him. Let our requests be known to God. And when this is done, God promises that His peace, not the peace the world has, which the world does not know, not the peace that you and I could come up with with our structured answer to any particular life problem, not the expression of even what authorities can do. We'll have this protocol in place. It'll bring peace. It will not. What peace? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. What will it do? Guard our hearts. Isn't that what we're looking for? We're looking for protection from our own emotions, protection from our own thoughts and feelings and our minds in Jesus Christ. Heart and mind, same thing. We're looking to see peace. How will be guarded just like the promise that Peter said? Through a promise, eternal life, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, this is a discipline that is a gift of God. If we do otherwise, what can we expect from God? What does James say to the believers? He says if we ask and then ignore, we can expect nothing from God. So we've been asking, how can I work this out in my life? How can I find peace If we don't do this, we'll never have it. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. Salvation is the point to which we look, is the promise to which we hold. This is where peace comes from. But if we're not listening to the promises of God in Scripture and trusting in His promises, we're just like the people of coming from Egypt. Where we see God's provision and we go, there's got to be something else to eat. Did you bring us out here to die, God? And God's like, yeah, I did. You said it, not me. We call that a self-fulfilling prophecy. And those final instructions, what are we doing? We're thinking with our minds. We're playing in our minds. We've got a playground going on, and we're not playing spiritually. We're playing fleshly games. Whatever's true. (laughs) Whatever is true. Whatever's honorable. Whatever's just. Now, you can see the thing. Well, let me ask you this. Are those things causing us anxiety? I mean, the true things, the honorable things, the beautiful things, the pleasant things commendable things, the things that have excellence, are those things causing us anxiety? No! Then why are we not thinking about them? That's driving me crazy. No. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things, beloved. Remember this gospel truth. Christ in His body and His death has established peace with God. And we are here together to work that out with fear and trembling, trusting in the one who is faithful. You notice it doesn't, we don't work it out with easy-go-lucky. 
then why are we looking for that? Let's look to Christ. Let's look to His work. And let's rejoice. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your everlasting love, for the hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, this this day has been your day. And we can all relate to these things. So, Lord, it's just been a good opportunity to remember the gospel that we know already, to be reminded of our hope, which is in Christ Jesus, to, to, to grasp hold of the surreal, just unreal truth that this world is not what it's all about, yet this is the most tangible thing we've ever experienced. Help us to let go and to hold this world loosely for all that it is and all that is in it and all that you have put us through has been your providence and your purpose for your glory, to the praise of your name, for the joy of your people. Father, we need each other. Draw us close. Help us to seek reconciliation. Cause us to pray for one another. Bring us to the place where we're listening to your word over and over again, that you may teach us. And we thank you for the peace that you've given us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's prepare.